And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Jesus, or Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This is the word of God. I remember the first time I felt helpless against evil. I was about three years old, I started having night terrors, they call them night terrors. It really was just any time I would go to sleep, morning, afternoon, night. And I was at the age where I could communicate to my parents relatively well, but it was hard for me to tell them exactly what was happening in these dreams. My mom just could tell there was something really bad going wrong. And I remember specifically one afternoon I woke up from a nap and I was more distraught than normal. I was sweating. I was screaming. I was crying. I was shaking. And my mom came in and consoled me and said, what's wrong? What's going on? And the only thing I knew to say was King Kong took Coco. In my limited imagination, or my wild imagination, but limited vocabulary, the best way I knew to describe this monster figure that I saw in my dream was King Kong. I guess I'd seen somehow the movie King Kong or a cartoon or something. And Coco, of course, was our little dog, a little brown dachshund. And my mom said, baby, I'm sure Coco's fine. It's okay. It's okay, baby. And she, she, my parents were new Christians. They didn't really know much about this sort of thing. And so she just consoled me there, there, and sent me back to bed. Sure enough, Coco was gone. Something happened to Coco. For two weeks, Coco was gone. And Coco came back, and something was wrong with Coco. Coco walked onto the front porch in our little bitty Cerency, Georgia town and just laid down inconsolable. Now, like I said, my parents were new to the Christian faith and they knew something about using the name of Jesus. And so my dad reached down and laid his hand on that dog and said something in the name of Jesus. The dog hopped up, jumped off the porch, ran out into the street and was hit by a truck. And I was there watching. As a little boy, I immediately knew there is something evil out there. And it's not supposed to be that way. 
A little bit later, the night terrors continued, and I was, again, inconsolable. I would hear these voices uh, at night when I would go to sleep. You don't really typically tell people that, but here I am standing in public telling people I heard voices. Uh, four, five, six years old, and I, I just, my parents finally taught me, okay, just sing. Put on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And sometimes the, the voices would stop. And one night I just got so fed up, I decided to do something about it. And we lived in a little split-level house now in Lake Junaleska, beautiful Lake Junaleska, North Carolina. My bedroom had a window that when you looked out the window, you saw the ground. So I rolled over, pulled the curtain open, and said, if there's a devil in the grass, come out and face me. Bad idea. I don't know why. I don't know why I said that. And I still, still to this day don't know what I saw, but I saw something again that terrified me. There's an evil out there somewhere, and it's not supposed to be this way. Pretty soon I learned, though, that evil is not just this big, ambiguous thing out there, this, this thing that you can't quite wrap your mind around. Evil is also in people. My first girlfriend um, <laughs> was in third grade. Her name was Gail. She was so pretty, and she could run so fast. She was the kind of pretty that made you blush when she talked to you, and she was the kind of fast that you couldn't beat on the playground. But I beat her, and that's why I was her boyfriend. Some reason, my parents decided to take us on a date, a date in third grade. Took the whole family with us, took us to Godfather Pizza, and my siblings, I guess they'd seen it in the movies, I don't know, they lifted up my members-only jacket, and I got my first kiss. The next day... Gail broke up with me. It wasn't because I wasn't a good kisser. I don't <laughs> she said, Jay is now my boyfriend. He's a country boy. I came home and I cried. And for the first time, I realized people can be pretty evil too. But now that I'm an adult... Obviously, I've seen evil out there, not just spiritual evil, but systemic injustice, not just pe pe bad people, but good people doing bad things. Evil is not just something that's out there. I've had to acknowledge it. I've hurt people. And through my intent and unintentional consequences, evil is sometimes in here. It's this thing we call sin. In preparing for this weekend's sermon from the book of Mark, I'd written it on Wednesday. Of course, as you know, most everything that happened in the news happened right around there, Wednesday, Thursday. I turned in my notes, and the title of the sermon is, I don't typically like to give it out of the beginning, but it matters. The title of the sermon is is God really paying attention? Is God really paying attention? That's a big question. It's a huge question, and we do see the answer in the text that we read. We're going to take our time and kind of walk through this, but really, we're just going to limit it to two different ideas. Is God really paying attention to injustice? Is God really paying attention to, to the bad that's happening in the world? And also, is God really paying attention to the good? 
the classic question, why do bad things happen to good people, can also be flipped. Why do good things happen to bad people? Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. But if that's true, is he paying attention? Is Jesus really paying attention to the injustice that's happening in this world? Is he really paying attention to our faithfulness? Is he really paying attention to our prayers? By injustice, I mean anything bad, any trauma, any woundedness, any crisis, any sickness, any death. And by faithfulness, I I mean anything good, any self-sacrifice, any generosity, any long-suffering, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit, any acts of enemy love in the way of Jesus. Is Jesus really paying attention to these things? If you have your Bibles, open them back up to Mark chapter 12. I'll be working through the Christian Standard Version. We'll have the verses up on the screen. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Last week, we'll remember at the end of all these series of questions that came to Jesus, all these adversarial questions, these, these, uh, this interrogation, at the end, it says that no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. And now Jesus is the one asking the question. And this is a doozy. How can the scribes say that, that the Messiah is the son of David? If you remember earlier in the book of Mark, somebody cried out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What did they mean by son of David? Verse 36, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son, Jesus asks. Now, in English, it's easy to miss what's happening here. Let's go back to verse 36. In verse 36, it says, David says to himself, by the Spirit, um, the Lord declares to my Lord. It's the same word, Lord, Lord. But in Hebrew, the word Lord, if it's capitalized in your Old Testament, little interpretive key, anybody know what it means? Yahweh, Yahweh. It's called a tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton. And it's Y-H-W-H. Now, the Jewish people were told to revere, to honor, to not take the name of the Lord in vain. And so when they would write it or they would say it, they would cover it and said, instead of saying Yahweh, which is the personal name of God given to Moses, they would call him Adonai, which is Lord. But Adonai also just means Lord or Sir or Ruler. And so Jesus is saying in verse 36, Yahweh declared to Adonai, meaning the God of the universe declared to David or to to my Lord, sit at my right hand um, and I, I will put your enemies under your feet. 
And the large crowd was listening to him with delight, the CSV says. Why were they delighted? Why were they so happy? Uh, in, in the ESV, it says the throng, the throng, the, the massive throng. Well, where was Jesus teaching? Jesus was teaching in the temple, in the temple complex. He's outside, and he's in a place where anybody can hear him, anybody of any social class, male Jew, female Jew, male Gentile, female Gentile. Anybody who wanted to come listen could hear Jesus. He's not in the Holy of Holies. He's not in the inner court. He is not even just in the court of women. He's outside in the court of the Gentiles. So everybody can hear him. And what is he doing? He's pointing out the scribes. And he's asking him a question. He's asking them a question that confounds them. It's not a question they knew the answer to. So they're listening with delight because here these educated people who lord over the uneducated are being upended. But what's Jesus doing? Verse 38 says, he said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want, to, who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. He says, beware, meaning don't be deceived about what you see on the outside. Don't be deceived by the beauty of this temple which Herod built on slave labor. Don't be deceived by what you see in the education and in the, um, in the outward appearance of these guys. Don't be deceived by it. And notice, he also doesn't shame them for their education and for their wealth. It's not about being poor or not poor or, or having a lot or not having a lot. All social norms are obsolete currency in the kingdom of Jesus. The only thing worth anything to the Christian is Jesus. And oh, by the way, he's worth everything. Beware of the scribes. And then he says this, don't you know that I see widows who are within earshot of Jesus are leaning in. The poor and the vulnerable are leaning in when he says, they devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. Don't you know I see, Jesus says. Don't you know Yahweh sees injustice, Jesus says. They will receive harsher judgment. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Jesus, Yahweh, looks at the heart. And by pointing to that future judgment, Jesus is holding two things in tension. Jesus is saying, I am here, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. I am here. I am with you. Justice is coming. I have done something about it by coming. I am here. I am doing something about it. And I will do something about it in the future. In theological terms, they call this the already and the not yet. Jesus said, it is finished. But yet, 
his rule and reign has not yet happened. We live in the tension of the now and the not yet. We live in the tension of crying out to God about injustice. Does God really see what's happening? Why does good happen to bad people? And why does bad happen to good people? Don't you know, Jesus is saying. He's standing in a place that is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. It's supposed to be a place where people of every tribe, nation, and come, uh, tongue come to worship God. It's, a, it's supposed to be a place of grace and of liberty where, where captives are set free, and yet there's gross negligence, there's injustice, there's manipulation, there's coercion, there's domination. And Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. I see it. But you know what it says to me also? It says that Jesus is breathtakingly patient, even with his enemies. Jesus is far more patient with his enemies than I would be. But Jesus also sees what I don't see. He also sees goodness in a way that I don't see it. He also sees acts of justice in a way that I don't see it. Jesus really does see injustice. Timothy Gombus writes, the events that have just unfolded in the temple courts with the Sanhedrin sending the Herodians and the scribes and the Pharisees, and even what's about to happen with the Jesus' betrayal, trial, and crucifixion, listen to this. They are the process by which God is subjecting his enemies to Jesus. What looks like defeat for Jesus is actually the paradoxical manner in which Jesus accomplishes triumph. What does that mean? Jesus wins by laying down his life. Jesus wins by serving. Jesus wins by not putting up a fight against the violence of his enemies. Verse 41, sitting across from the temple, the temple treasury, he watched. Does Jesus see? Yeah. He pays closer attention than we do. He's watching the crowd dropping money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and the poor widow came to him and dropped in two tiny coins worth very Little, the Doug O'Bees pointed out, it's worth just a penny. Jesus says, hey, 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 come here, come here, quick, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. He brings his disciples around. Guys, guys, boys, 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 look at this, look at this lady, look at this lady. Truly, I tell you, look at her. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they've given out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now just to fill out the story here, Jesus was likely sitting on a bench watching people bring their financial contributions to the temple treasury, and according to the Mishnah, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles that were, were placed in the court of women. 
Now, we're going to take up a special offering to put 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles in the back of... No, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, Just making sure you're still listening. And the amount of the gift... Listen to this. Okay, I want you to just listen to this. The amount of the gift was declared out loud with the purpose. Could you imagine if we did that in church? We got little giving boxes, but if, if you had to take a bullhorn and tell everybody how much you're giving and what, what you hope it goes for, that's what they did. Well, then, of course, the people who give a lot of money can veil their hard heart. There's an opportunity. Not everybody who gave a lot was veiling their hard heart, but there was an opportunity you could see. They couldn't conceal it. And also... There was within the rabbinical tradition a story of this woman who gave so little that the priest said, take it away. That's not a fitting offering for Yahweh. Jesus finds this thing happening, and he brings his disciples, and he says, you want to know the way of your rabbi? This is the way of your rabbi. The fact that she gave two coins is significant because it shows she could have kept one. If you've got nothing and you want to give an act of generosity, you've got two of something, surely you keep one for yourself to go survive the next day. She doesn't. She gives everything she has. And Jesus is saying, this is what it means to be my disciple wholehearted, whole life surrender. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The only thing worth anything in the kingdom of God is Jesus. And oh, by the way, he's worth everything. You know what I also love about this? Think about the injustice There are whole movements of people, including the Essenes. Remember John the Baptist who moved away from the temple? There are whole movements of people who are saying, man, the temple is corrupt. Stay away from the temple. Don't go pray at the temple. Let's go away. The temple is corrupt. Herod is corrupt. Caiaphas, the high priest, is corrupt. In the middle of this corrupt system, man, this makes me emotional because Jesus, he sees the gift of this lady and he knows her heart. She's giving to someone who doesn't even care about her gift. Some of you have family members who are giving gifts to ministries, and you're just like, I don't even know about that. Or they're going to be healed at ministries that that you're just like, I don't even know about that. Guess who does see? Jesus sees. Don't you think Jesus in his goodness can meet them right where they are? Does Jesus see injustice? Yes, Does Jesus see your generosity? You better believe it. Is he doing something about it? Yes. Yes, God is really paying attention. Yes, Jesus really sees. You see, when you feel helpless and you feel like there's nothing you can do, Don't be deceived. Every act of faithfulness matters. What do we do when we see the world falling apart around us? Do we hold up and store up and isolate? 
Or do we give all, I, all we have to serve and love? How do we push back the darkness? One act of kindness at a time. One prayer at a time. One act of worship at a time. One act of generosity at a time. Every time you're patient with someone you dislike in the office, you're pushing back the, the darkness. Every time you're honest, even when it hurts you, you're pushing back the darkness. And Jesus sees it and celebrates it. What do you do when it seems like evil is winning? You push back the darkness in defiance of evil, because you know that Jesus has come. He is here, and he is coming again. He has done something. He will do something. And his coming means that I can live in the here and now as if he really is reigning as king. The gospel says that the Lord of David is not just the son of David. He's not just a temporary nationalistic ruler, which is what they wanted. That's what they wanted. They just wanted Israel to come back to power. And with, for good reason. They were under the thumb of Rome. They had lost all, they, had, they were losing ground in their religion. Here are four things that Jesus did that no one saw coming. First of all, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. When he stretched out his arms on the cross and he allowed his enemies to kill him, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. You know where that comes from? Genesis 3.15. The first gospel is preached in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's the first point of the gospel. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. The second point of the gospel is Jesus really did disarm the powers and principalities. The only weapon they have now is lies. It's deceit. The third thing that Jesus did is he heals broken humans by rescuing, fourthly, and empowering, saving individuals. We here today are gathered under the name of Jesus and the authority of of scripture. And when we do, we're bearing witness that we're going all in on resurrection. Someday, every body in this room, every physical body will be buried, should the Lord tarry. But we're saying we believe that that's not the end of the story. We're not deceived. God really is paying attention. King Jesus really does see injustice. King Jesus really does see your smallest acts of faithfulness. And the best news of all is that his work is finished. What he has done and is doing and will do, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. I want to invite the worship band to come. And as they come, I want to read Psalm 27. Just the first few verses over you. I want to invite you right there in your seat just to take a, a posture of reflection and worship. If you're new to the reality family, we like to respond to Scripture by doing something physical, doing something worshipful. So we're going to worship God together. We have carpets up front in communion. 
Come make your place with God here or right there at your seats, wherever you feel comfortable. Let's respond to injustice by acts of faithfulness because Jesus really is king. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord, Yahweh, is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I still will be confident. I have asked the Lord for one thing. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of Yahweh and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter. In the day of adversity, he will hide me under the cover of his tent. And he will set me on high on a rock. Thanks be to God.